We are going to be finishing up Romans 12 today with a fairly large portion of Scripture. So I want to encourage you to uh, open your Bibles, pull up your phones, whatever you use, follow along. We're going to be moving relatively quickly through it. I want to invite you to turn there now, Romans 12, 9 through 21. We're going to be continuing our discussion of what a truly Christian life of worship, love, and sacrifice looks like in action. There's not going to be three points today. I'm just going to be doing some expository, verse-by-verse preaching as we go through it. But we have one big question. So if you are a note-taker, we have one big point, one big question. Here's the question. What does a life that seeks to love God and love others look like? So we're going to read that and find out. If you're reading from the NIV, you're going to see a little header at the top. probably says something like love in action. The ESV says marks of the true Christian. Both of those are not inspired, but they do give us a good idea of what we're aiming at today. So this is Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Last week, we discussed the spiritual gifts that God bestows upon us as believers and how we are to use them in worship to God and in service to the church. I mentioned that Paul goes in depth with the spiritual gifts In his discussion in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he really does a deep dive there. But I said that there's this this sort of an odd moment where he pauses in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians to talk about love. And he says that if you're using your gift, but you don't have love, you are a resounding gong. You're a clanging cymbal. You're good for nothing. You're not using your gift correctly. The Holy Spirit writing through Paul says that everything we do under the banner of Christ And in service to God and others must be done in love. This needs to be the fuel that drives our car. It needs to be the wind beneath our wings. Without love, we gain nothing. So it's no wonder then that Paul is going to start this this set here of practical exhortations by saying this. He says, let love be genuine. Now you would think this would be an easy thing to do, but it's not. We live in a sinful and disingenuous world. We live in a time of misinformation, of lies, and of fake news. And even our own lives can oftentimes be smoke and mirrors. You say, oh, surely not us. No, 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 no. No, my life is genuine. I live a completely genuine life all the time. And I counter first by saying, I don't believe you, because I don't. 
And secondly, have you ever taken a family photo in your life? You'll, you'll know the scenario. You go on vacation and you're there and you, it's an absolute train wreck. It's horrible. And you're there and the kids are hot and they're complaining. I'm sweating. I'm so tired. I really can't do this. And you spent way more money than you ever wanted to spend. And then you and your spouse get in a fight. Because your kids are hot and complaining and you spent more money than you ever wanted to spend. And all of this is compounding into a whirlwind. At the end of the day, what do mom and dad say? What does, what does your aunt say? Group photo. And everybody better smile and be happy or else. You see, it's easy for us not to be genuine. It's easy for love to not be genuine. Jesus says... In John 13, 35, very familiar. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Easy. Wrong. Wrong. It's hard. It's often easier to tell everyone just to smile, be quiet, and take the picture. But the Bible never leaves us with the easy option because God always has the best option in mind. He calls us out of darkness into the light. He calls us out of deception, out of lies and deceit. He's called us to live genuine, non-hypocritical lives of humility and of genuine love. And because it's hard to do this due to our sin, God has not left us alone. He sent His Holy Spirit to enable us to do this by His grace, by His mercy, to live genuinely, true lives of love by God's power. Well, what does this look like? Let's go where Paul goes. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Now, you've heard this a thousand times at every wedding you've ever been to, probably. But I want you to really listen to this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus in John 15, 13, he shows us the height of what this looks like in action. What does genuine love look like in action? He says this, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So a genuine life of love a 1 Corinthians 13 life of genuine love is a sacrificial life laid down in love for others. It is daily dying to self. It is thinking of yourself less and putting others first. And there's, of course, no greater example of this than Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus' love for you, his love for me, is so genuine and so real and so true and we can be so certain of his love. Why? Because Jesus' love was shown to us on the cross. The truest example of genuine love that has ever taken place in all of human history. And he invites us now as living models of this love, as living models of mercy, to take up our crosses and follow after him in this way. In this sacrificial laying down of our lives for others, for our family, for our church family. Paul moves on. Next, he says, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This goes back again to what we talked about weeks ago, about renewing and transforming our minds. Abhor means to simply regard with disgust 
or hatred. This is to hate our sin, to be killing sin before it kills us. This is not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to hold fast to the truth of God's word. This is Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. You see, we must replace our love for sin, our love for addictions, our love for, for this world, our love for everything else with a love for Jesus Christ. And we must turn our eyes from evil things. We have, to ask, we have to ask the Lord to purge those thoughts from our mind, to sanctify us, and to develop a spiritual taste for holiness. Evil has to become bitter. It has to become acidic in our mouths. We don't want it anymore. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The Lord did not see fit to give me a brother growing up, but I had the next best thing, which was a dog. I'm just kidding. I had a sister, if you don't know me. Not as good. I digress. And the love my sister and I had for one another growing up was not always the warmest or the kindest or maybe not even the most affectionate towards each other. Those of you with siblings, maybe you understand what I'm talking about. But now that we're older, however, I'm 95% sure with certainty that she at least likes me now. So that's good. At least I know that she likes me. I like her. We're fond of each other. I'm joking. But think, think about this. How hard is it to love the neighbors in our house? How hard is it to love the people that we should love, our, our blood relatives? The people that look like us. That's hard. How much harder is it now to love spiritual brothers and sisters here? The people we rub elbows with. How many churches have split due to failure to neglect this? Brotherly love, brotherly affection, outdoing one another and showing honor. Well, how do we avoid this conflict? Paul wants us to avoid it. How do we love one another with brotherly affection? I think the second part of this verse actually gives us the solution, and it's through healthy competition. If you, again, if you have a sibling, you know healthy sibling rivalry is good. This is a sibling rivalry where we outdo one another in showing each other honor. Where we go out of our way to say, no, 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 you're, you're the best one. No, no, you're the best one. You're good. I, and you show each other honor and encourage one another. It's a deep love and respect for your brothers and sisters. There's a Scottish historian named Thomas Carlyle, and he said this. He said, show me the man you honor, and I will know what kind of man you are. If we as Christians are honoring Christ and obeying his commands, it will be very, there will be very little difficulty in loving those for whom he died. If as a church we are pursuing holiness, if we're seeking to honor Christ in everything we do, then the petty squabbles that we often have, the petty squabbles that will break up a church become small things. And even large doctrinal issues can be worked through with love and respect. I know it's not easy. I know it's hard. Again, we need the Lord's grace for this to happen. It's when we fail to honor one another. It's when we start seeing each other as less or as stupid or let, you know, inferior in some ways, these people become our enemies now. They're those people. Verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, 
Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. John Calvin has a wonderful thing to say about this verse. He says, By adding fervent in spirit, Paul shows how we are to attain the former. For our flesh, like the donkey, is always sluggish and has therefore need of goals. It is only the fervency of the spirit that can correct our slothfulness. Hence, diligence in doing good requires that zeal which the Spirit of God kindles within our hearts. Why then, someone may say, does Paul exhort us to cultivate this fervency? To this I answer, that though it is the gift of God, it is yet a duty given to the faithful to shake off sloth and to cherish the flame kindled by heaven, as it for the most part happens that the Spirit is suppressed and often extinguished through our own faults. What Calvin is saying is he's basically saying what Jesus says in Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we need to take this little light, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, hide it under a bushel. No, won't let Satan poof it out. No, I'm going to let it shine. And for that light to be kindled, we must cultivate that heavenly flame of zeal through spiritual disciplines. This is why you should go to church. You should read your Bibles and you should pray. You should be in small groups and you should have brother, you know, spiritual conversations with one another. You need to be cultivating that flame, that little light the Lord's given you. And if your love for the Lord is genuine, then, then put off slothfulness. Shake off the sloth and have a zeal for God. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. There was a man that came to watch a Little League baseball game one afternoon, and he asked the boy in the dugout, what's the score? The little boy responded, 18 to nothing, we're a little behind. (laughs) Wow, said the spectator, I'll bet you're discouraged. Why should I be discouraged, replied the little boy, we haven't even gotten up to bat yet. In, in this world, in this world, it's so easy to be discouraged. It's easy to feel like the darkness is winning. Like evil will just eventually consume everything. But as believers, we have a great and everlasting hope. We rejoice in the hope that King Jesus will return. And when he shows up, he's going to knock the ball out of the park. Being on his team means the game is already over. The trophy is as good as ours. Psalm 62, 5 through 6. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. So you see, we hold on to this hope. And and as we are patient in tribulation, we run a race of faith. And we face hurdles and obstacles together, but we do it together. And we have the finish line in sight. Those who run this race set their minds on things above, not on earthly things. Those who run this race rejoice in their sufferings because they know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And those who run this race rejoice always. They pray without ceasing, and they give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. If we want our, to, to prove our love is genuine, 
A good place to start, as I've talked about in the past two weeks, is here at the church. It's to, to love the body of believers, the saints, the household of faith. We're, of course, to serve all mankind, but there should be a special love between family. Special affection for those who are united under Christ. I was blessed this past week. I got to go to the deacons meeting, which I was very excited to do. And uh, it was just wonderful to be with these brothers who are so thoughtful in their care for the church. In the way they serve those behind the scenes. Often this goes unseen. And many of you have no clue what the deacons do. Uh, They're content to be livers, as I talked about last week. I'm also encouraged to hear about all the times that there are meal trains that are being set up and baby showers that are being thrown and hospital visitations of people who are praying for all of you behind the scenes. I just love it. I love the way the church loves one another. We're to outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now this admittedly is probably the most difficult verse in the whole passage. It's difficult because as sinful humans, everything about my will is opposed to this idea. It's also an impossible command to follow apart from the grace of God. Think of the difficulty that lies within this one verse. Someone wrongs you in a horrific way. Someone does something so heinous to you that it it affects your, your body and your soul. Everything about you. You just have a deep burning rage for this person. Now, the first restraint that you have to feel here is that you don't slug them right in the face. That's the first restraint. First of all, you don't have to act against them. You turn the other cheek. The second thing is that you need to not wish them harm at all. You need to have no hatred in your heart towards this person. The third difficulty is to forgive that person of the evil act. And the fourth and final difficulty is to actually wish them well. Do you see how difficult... This is. Do you see how impossible this, this command is apart from the love of Christ Jesus? It's a monumental task. It's hard enough for us to act this way towards those we love, but to act this way towards our enemies seems preposterous. Again, nothing is impossible with God. The blessing of our enemies is yet another proof of our love being genuine. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In order to forgive others, you must first understand what Christ has done for you. You have to look at the cross and see it for what it is. You have to see the depths of your sin. What God forgave you of before you can ever forgive your enemies. Think of Christ on the cross as he looks down upon his murderers and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is a love that should compel you to love and forgive others. It's a love that will transform your heart, your mind, and motivate you to love as Jesus loves. Now this will come at great cost. This will come at great cost to your pride. It may physically and mentally harm you. It may hurt you to to forgive others, but it will also free you. It will free you from a life of hate. It will free you from anger. Those who live in that darkness of hate and anger, they're, they're wearing shackles. And the person who hurt them actually is the one holding the shackles. Christ has come to set you free. Leave vengeance 
to God. You can be free. You can have a clear conscience. You can know that the Lord is in control. We're going to move a little faster now. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I want you to think about the story of Lazarus. Remember how Jesus reacts. He, he could have gone right away. He shows up late. He knows what's going to happen to Lazarus. And when he gets there, he weeps. And the Greek word used there is sort of the word for like a horse going like, like it's a it's a it's a ugly cry. The Lord weeps over the person he loves. He loves Lazarus. And it's so emotional, it's so impactful the way Jesus reacts that the Jews watching say, surely he loved this man. Do you see how he loved him? Jesus' tears are genuine. He loves Lazarus. And it's a good reminder for all of us, when people around us are mourning, we should put our, our, our best foot forward. We should put ourselves in their shoes. When tragedy happens, we should contemplate how you would feel if it happened to you. Think of how you can assist that hurting family. Do they need meals? Do they need financial help? Commit to pray for them every day for the next six months. And check in on them every month. Ask them, how are they doing? How are you? How's your sorrow? How are you mourning? How can I pray for you? You see, weeping with those who weeps is not a one-time thing. It doesn't mean showing up to the funeral and your job's done. It means walking alongside that tragedy for as long as it takes with that person because you love them. Because that's what you would do. And that's what you'd want them to do if they were in your shoes. In much the same way, rejoicing with those who rejoice looks like celebrating the wins. The small wins, the big wins. It means going to a kid in your church's graduation. It means throwing surprise birthday parties, wedding showers, feasts. You rejoice in God's good gifts together and you honor each other. You outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise. In your own sight. So much again of these practical statements find their solutions in the final exhortation. If you want to live in harmony, do not be wise in your own sight. If you want to not be haughty, meaning arrogant, then you need to not be wise in your own sight. Again, you must think of yourself less. It's, it's hard to live in harmony, almost impossible if you think someone is below you. It's hard to not be arrogant when you secretly think you're the fourth member of the Godhead. And if everyone would just obey your will, if everyone would just take the picture, if everyone would just fall in line, everything would go well. There's no harmony there. Paul says, in order to think less of yourself, you should associate with the humble and the lowly. You should go be with the downcast. You should go serve the poor. You should go to a third world country, see what you truly have. Hang out with the much smarter people and be humbled by them. I'm happy to help with that last one. Come hang out with me. It goes without saying how many verses I could mention of Jesus embodying this. How many lowly people did Jesus associate with? When was Jesus ever accused of being arrogant or pompous? He was the wisest man who ever lived and he was quick to answer questions. He always had time, he was quick to teach, and he served all those around him. I'm going to take the last few verses 
in two separate groups. The first group is verses 17 through 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Chris Singleton, whose mother died in the horrific shooting rampage in Charleston, South Carolina, back in 2015, I'm sure you remember it, at a church. He said this, he said, love is stronger than hate. We will get through it. Our church will get through it. It's tough times, but I know for a fact that everyone will press on. He continued, Honestly, my knees are a little weak right now, but I'm trying to stay as strong as I can while I press on. We are mourning right now, but I know we'll get through it. Speaking about the shooter, if you remember the story, Dylan Roof came into a Bible study and then shot them all. Chris said this, We already forgive him for what he's done. There's nothing but love from our side of the family. And there are very few modern examples that I can think of that are better than this one. Of what repaying no one evil for evil looks like. Chris Singleton, many of the other families who had to deal with that loss, with that tragedy, they did what was honorable in the sight of all. They did the hardest thing. They didn't take the easy option. They didn't hate him. They showed him the love of Christ. They showed him what it looks like to love your enemy. They showed him exactly what grace that is greater than all our sins looks like. And the rest we leave up to God. Revenge does not ultimately satisfy. Repaying evil for evil may feel good in the moment. It probably would have felt good in the moment for Chris to to hate him, to, to, to curse at him, to punch him, to physically hurt him. But it will not heal your soul. To leave the judgment to God. And if possible, what does Paul say? So far as it depends on you, if possible, live peaceably with all. Final verses, 20 through 21. They show us the effect that love, kindness, forgiveness. This is what it's going to look like when we act this way towards our enemies, towards our friends. This is how it's going to look. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, there's so much that has been said about this one little verse about heaping burning coals on people's head. There are some that, that take it as sort of a, a kill them with kindness type of thing. Then there are others that say, but by treating them with kindness, you're, you're, you're heaping hot coals on them. It's actually referring to their destruction. Eventually they'll be destroyed. So, you know, only, we can only stand so many hot coals being poured on our head before we die. But I sort of take it as both. I think it means that if our enemies are softened by our kindness, then they're going to repent. And it will be unbearable for them not to do so. Their hearts will be so cut by the way we're loving them and treating them that they'll come to us and say, I was wrong. I was wrong. I want to be back in harmony with you. I want to, I want to be back in relationship with you. And I think the other side is true, too. If, if they remain callous to our kindness, to our love, as Dylan Roof seems to be, as many others throughout history seem to be, then they're doubling the wrath that's being stored up for their day of wrath. 
This is why we repay evil with good. We leave the rest up to the Lord. There's a wonderful hymn that was written in 1664 by an English Puritan named Samuel Crossman. And the title of the hymn is, My Song is Love Unknown. In the hymn, Crossman talks about the love that Jesus Christ has that is so wonderful. It's so wonderful, it's so unheard of, that there's no other love like it. So it's unknown. It's an unknown love that he discovers. And this love causes him to sing in the first verse. He says, my song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. In the fourth verse, he asks what crime it was that they crucified Jesus. Why, why did they kill Jesus? And he comes to the conclusion that it was actually because he did good. Because he was so kind. Because he did miracles. And they hated him for it. He says, why would hath my Lord done? What makes this rage and spite? He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight. Sweet injuries. Yet they at these themselves displease and against him rise. They rise and needs will have my dear Lord made away. A murderer they save. The prince of life they slay. Yet cheerful he goes, he to suffering goes. That he his foes from thence might free. He goes cheerfully to suffering in order to free his enemies. Here might I stay and sing, no story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. And as believers, this is our song. Our song is love unknown. Our lives are to be the instruments that play this precious melody of Christ. These are lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are lives of sacrifice, lives of service, lives of worship. I'm going to close with one more set of song lyrics. This is from an artist named Sarah Groves, who my wife absolutely loves and I love. And she has a song called You Are the Sun. She says, you are the sun shining down on everyone, light of the world, giving light to everything I see. Beauty so brilliant, I can hardly take it in. And everywhere you are is warmth and light. And I am the moon with no light of my own. Still, you've made me to shine. And as I glow in this cold, dark night, I know I can't be a light unless I turn my face to you. And so this is what we've been talking about. In Romans 12, we've been saying if you want to be a light, you have to turn your face to Christ. You have to reflect his light. You have to reflect his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. You have to proclaim his gospel. You have to sing this marvelous, unknown song of love, which is now made known, made known to us, to the whole world, through his life, his death, his resurrection. For sinners. And until Dylan Roof draws his final breath, there is hope. Consider that. And if there is hope for Dylan Roof and for men like him, then what does that say about you and me? There is tremendous hope in the cross of Christ for all of us here today.